Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is not an epidemic, but it's an epidemic of epidemics. It's overdoses. It's neonatal abstinence syndrome. It's hepatitis C, which is now the number one infectious killer in the United States. It's the children who've been abandoned uh, because one or both parents are using. This is a broad and complex epidemic that is the greatest public health threat in my lifetime. Katrina, Ferguson, Oak Creek. In America, a local tragedy can spark a national conversation. But what happens after the national news cycle moves on? I'm Ziba Blay, and this is I'm Still Here, a HuffPost podcast. By now, we're all pretty used to hearing statistics like these. In 2015, there were more than 52,000 deaths from drug overdose in the U.S., with more than 33,000 deaths involving an opioid. Deaths from opioid overdoses have tripled since 2000. In a matter of just a few years, opiates and heroin have zoomed into the foreground of American life, to the point that it seems totally natural to hear something like this from the president. My administration is officially declaring the opioid crisis a national public health emergency. For this episode, HuffPost reporter Nick Wing traveled to West Virginia, the state that's been hit hardest by the epidemic. He went there with two big questions. What is being done, and is it working? So Nick, when we say epidemic, what exactly does that mean? Well, as you heard at the top, in 2015, uh, 33,000 people died of overdoses related to opioids, including heroin or prescription painkillers, and more recently, a drug called fentanyl. Recent studies suggest those numbers rose sharply last year and are probably going to continue to rise again in 2017. It's really hard to explain just how astonishing these numbers are. I mean, by some counts, around 100 people are dying from opioids every day across the U.S. Drug overdoses overall already claim more lives each year than car crashes or gun violence. But if the current trend continues, opioid deaths alone will soon outpace both of them as well. Talking specifically about West Virginia, where you went, what's being done there to combat all of this? So there are a few competing approaches. On the one hand, you have this war on drugs mentality that we're so familiar with now. A lot of that rhetoric from politicians is about solving the problem by throwing people in jail and cracking down on drugs and users. Which doesn't sound like a very imaginative solution to the problem. Uh, Not really. I mean, of course, it's easy to understand people's frustration when they see public resources going to revive the same addict over and over. But a lot of people in the medical community think that politics and policy in the state capital, which is Charleston, where we were, have turned addiction into a death sentence. And that's why I think it's so important to look closer at techniques that have actually shown some promise in combating addiction. On my trip to West Virginia, I investigated a form of addiction treatment that a lot of experts think is the best shot at slowing down this massive tide of overdose deaths that is threatening to wipe out an entire generation in the state. But before we get to that, I talked to Eric Ayer. He's a reporter for the Charleston Gazette-Mail who won the Pulitzer in 2017 for his reporting on this issue. He told me a little bit more about the roots of this whole epidemic. 
I think it basically around 2005 was where things started. And it basically started with um, you had a couple of uh, rogue doctors from other states, and they had been disciplined and sanctioned. Other states decided to come to West Virginia. They set up what they call pill mill clinics. The stories you hear um, based on some of the litigants in, in the various lawsuits is that um, you have a uh, coal miner that gets hurt. They then go to a legitimate doctor. They get pain pills. So they get addicted, and then the, the legitimate doctor won't prescribe anymore, so they wind up going to these pill mill clinics where you would go in. A pill mill is a term for a clinic that hands out prescriptions for pain pills without asking a lot of questions. With pharma companies aggressively pushing opioids in the 90s and early 2000s, these places popped up everywhere, often in strip malls with innocuous-sounding names like Pain Center. As long as you had cash, that was all they cared about. So we saw this huge volume of pills, but what was even more striking is that the disproportionate number of pills were all going to southern West Virginia. That was how it started. But then a familiar pattern started to take hold. Authorities cracked down on pill mills, and people who had gotten addicted to Oxycontin and other painkillers turned to a cheaper and more potent way to feed their addictions, heroin. There was a couple years where Oxycontin and hydrocodone were the number one leading cause of overdose deaths. And then all of a sudden, whoa, you know, heroin, heroin deaths had tripled. And it's like, hey, what's going on here? It's just a, a feeling of kind of hopelessness of what, you know, what is the answer to the problem? The situation in West Virginia has led to lots of finger pointing. Pharma execs say the DEA should have caught this problem, but the DEA says it was told not to crack down on pharma companies. The State Board of Pharmacy certainly dropped the ball here as well, and there's been plenty of criticism of policymakers for failing to account for what's called the push-down pop-up phenomenon. And that's where if you push down the problem in one place, say by cracking down on pill mills, it pops up somewhere else. In this case with heroin use. Exactly. And more recently, fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that can be around 50 times stronger than heroin. So sometimes the replacement drug actually ends up being a lot worse than the one you were trying to stop initially. When I was in Charleston, I visited the Cabin Creek Health Center. It's a primary care facility that runs an addiction recovery program. How can I help you? Uh, we're here to meet Lois. Where are you from? HuffPost. Okay. I went there to talk to some people who are actually in recovery and learn about the treatments they're using. I grew up in uh, Cedar Grove. It's about uh, 15 miles east of here. This is Greg Carpenter. Greg is 38 years old and started treatment at Cabin Creek early this year. When Greg was younger, he experimented with alcohol and various drugs, cocaine, LSD, but he told me none of those really grabbed a hold of him. Then the Oxycontins came out, and it was all over. That was the end of my life right there. The first time I ever did it, I puked my guts out and then felt better than I'd ever felt in my life. When he first started using Oxycontin, Greg had no clue what he was getting himself into. Before he really knew what was going on, he had developed a physical addiction. I remember very distinctly the first time I knew something was going on. I uh, got home from work, and I was uh, laying in my bed, and I was, I, my legs were hurting. I was nervous. I was sweating. I was shaking. And I, couldn't, I didn't make the connection. I couldn't figure out what was going on. My next opportunity to buy a pill came along, and I noticed that I felt better, and I thought, oh, no. And instead of just 
biting a bullet and dealing with the mild withdrawal, I just kept right on going and did more of it. Greg was far from alone here. At the same time, all over West Virginia, people were getting deeper and deeper into painkillers. They were highly addictive, and they were everywhere. And because doctors were prescribing them, people didn't exercise the same sort of caution they might have with other drugs. I didn't know anything about them. Doctors were prescribing these to a lot of uh, a lot of gentlemen who were injured in the mines, in the coal mines, and the doctors wouldn't explain to them the risks. It grabbed a hold of people quick, fast, and in a hurry. These doctors were giving them out like candy and wasn't passing on the information to their patients. The explosion of pill mills meant that there were more and more of these drugs flooding the state and more and more people coming into contact with them. And as they increasingly made their way onto the black market, the reach expanded beyond pain patients to casual recreational users. That's how Archie Nelson first started taking them. I only did them on the weekends for a long time. Go out and, you know, drink, party and stuff. And it slowly just became a habit. Took over everything. Archie grew up in a coal mining town about an hour down the road from Charleston. He was working a job in the Capitol when prescription painkillers hit in the late 90s. I didn't understand I was getting addicted until someone explained it to me one day. I thought I had the flu. And he told me, no, you're, you're dope sick. You're getting addicted to it. Worked two jobs at that time. And they were drug testing really bad. They were really hard-nosed against pot, but pain pills, so didn't say anything about that. And it slowly just became a habit. Took over everything. They got hard to find for a while, the pain pills and stuff. And I started uh, shooting up. I mean, that's as bad as you can get, really. Yeah, I thought heroin was the big bad that you couldn't come back from. It. I'd heard about people dying on it and everything, but I didn't know the some of the pills were just as bad, yeah. if not worse. If I was in need, I thought, walk up behind you on the street and knock you out and take your wallet. If I was in need. In 2005, Archie enlisted in the Army, which he thought would make him quit cold turkey. If things had gone as planned, that might have been the end of his addiction. But he didn't make it out of training. I ended up getting hurt. I had to come back. I messed my back up bad. So they put me back on the pain pills again. Then it just, it started all over again. What sort of a time frame are we talking about here? How long had Greg and Archie been dealing with addiction when you met them? On and off again for well over a decade, but not at full tilt the whole time. That's the thing about substance abuse. They've had periods where they try to get clean, but they either weren't totally ready or they didn't have the resources to make it stick. And even when they made a serious commitment, they found that it wasn't easy. First, they tried the methadone clinic. Methadone, we should explain. People have probably heard of methadone, but basically it's a synthetic opioid that is used as maintenance medication for people in recovery from other opiates. Yeah, and it's typically administered under supervision, and it's supposed to save off withdrawal without giving users the associated high. Unfortunately, it can have other effects. It's... Different for different people, but Archie's experience on methadone was pretty bad. I couldn't stand it. If you're a zombie, not out. When you're sitting like I'd be sitting here, 
I just nod out, wake up and have my arm raised like I was in class or something. Greg had the opposite problem. Methadone just didn't really have an effect on him. I got myself up to 85 milligrams, and by 5 o'clock that evening, I was in withdrawal. I mean, it just didn't, I don't know if it's my metabolism or what, but methadone just wasn't clicking for me. And it was, I, I quit abruptly, stupidly, and it was miserable. Methadone was tough to come off of, worse than the pills, worse than the heroin, I thought. So obviously methadone wasn't working for Greg and Archie, and it wasn't cheap. Medicaid doesn't cover methadone treatment in West Virginia. Politicians have been pretty reluctant to support methadone because when you get right down to it, it's another opioid, and many people are stuck in this mindset that abstinence is the only way to deal with addiction. Even if methadone does work for you, you might be on it for the rest of your life. And if you're paying cash, a year of treatment can cost up to $3,500. Wow, I'd imagine many people dealing with addiction don't have that kind of disposable income. Right, especially in West Virginia, but really in a lot of the areas hit hardest by the opioid epidemic. So Greg and Archie turned to cash-only clinics. Typically, doctors at these places don't accept health insurance or Medicaid and instead charge a flat fee for a visit because they make more money that way. In the mid-2000s, these places started writing prescriptions for something called Suboxone. Doctors turning to an increasingly popular option called Suboxone. The most effective drug in breaking the addiction cycle. Somewhere between a 40 to 60% success rate. Suboxone is a prescription drug. It contains buprenorphine, which is an opioid medication that acts similarly to methadone, but a little bit less intensely. And that combines with naloxone, which blocks opioid receptors. So this is the stuff that first responders use to pull people out of an overdose. So you put it all together and you have a drug that takes care of opioid cravings and saves off withdrawal, while also discouraging further opioid abuse. So the obvious question would be, how is Suboxone any better than methadone? Well, it's a less time-consuming form of treatment because you don't need to go to a clinic to get it. Uh, But it's also less intense than methadone, so it doesn't bring on those zombie symptoms Archie was talking about. Suboxone is highly effective when used properly, but it also wasn't cheap back then. We're talking potentially hundreds of dollars to fill prescriptions. And even if you had the money, there were waiting lists to see a doctor who could prescribe it. The waiting list was sometimes hundreds deep. So if you can't afford the cash only and you're sitting on a waiting list at number 422, um, you're going to do something. You're going to use or you're going to try to get better on your own. And that's what you do. And that's what I did. I opted to start buying some boxing on the street. When we return from the break, Greg's fortunes finally change. Stay with us. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Before we get back to the show, have you found I'm Still Here on Apple Podcasts? 
If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or tell a friend. Or you can send us an email, still here at HuffPost.com. Okay, now back to the show. When we left off, Greg Carpenter had decided to start buying Suboxone on the street to self-medicate. That was when he found out about a place in Charleston called the Cabin Creek Health Center. Here's Nick Wink. By their own separate routes, Greg and Archie both ended up in treatment at Cabin Creek. They tell me that it tastes nasty. This is Lois Vance, who manages the Medication-Assisted Treatment, or MAT, program at Cabin Creek. She actually hands patients their first dose of Suboxone. You know, and you see them take it, and they, they wince, and you have to let it melt, and it goes immediately goes into their system. And when the new patients come in... Um, and we give them that first dose, we make them sit in the room with us while that, that and you can just see that, that nasty look they get on their face. But it works immediately. In about 25 minutes, you can see those withdrawal symptoms begin to be alleviated and they start feeling better. It's pretty quick acting. Cabin Creek's MAP program is intensive. There's therapy, Narcotics Anonymous meetings, monitored drug screens... Patients have to bring back their Suboxone wrappers so Lois can check serial numbers and make sure they aren't selling it on the black market. Cabin Creek can only take a limited number of patients, so they really don't mess around. They want to make sure they're maximizing their chances of success in each case. Greg and Archie are still in their first year at Cabin Creek, but things are looking promising. Archie told me Suboxone is the only thing that lets him put addiction out of his mind. I don't feel high. I don't think I've ever felt high on it. I just feel normal. So then why isn't this kind of treatment being used more? Well, medication-assisted treatment is increasingly recognized as the most effective way to deal with opiate addiction, but the fact is that Suboxone still contains an opioid. And so it provokes the same kind of stigma that methadone always has. People look at it and they say, you're not solving the problem, you're just swapping out Oxycontin or heroin for another drug. And I've had this reaction from nurses and doctors say, well, you're just taking away one drug and give them another. And they, and I understand why that f- they think that. For the most part, they're still viewed as a drug addict. Oh, you're in one of those places. You're in, you're in one of them suboxone clinic. And that attitude is still very much mainstream. Earlier this year, former Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price, who was then the top medical official in the U.S. government, said that prescribing these drugs was just substituting one opioid for another. People like Price prefer faith-based abstinence-only programs, which you might know as Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. But these programs alone have been shown to be highly ineffective for many individuals suffering from addiction. They work for as few as 5 or 10% of opioid addicts when they're not combined with some other form of medication like Suboxone. Many people relapse and fatally overdose after coming out of these programs. So if programs like this don't work, why do people like Price continue to support them? Well, this actually gets at the central disagreement over addiction and treatment. Um... Basically, you have two schools of thought. You have the abstinence-only approach, which comes from a traditional way of looking at addiction that says this is a moral failing. People need to simply stop using the drugs. And maintenance treatments are bad because they don't eliminate that fundamental problem, which is that someone has made choices that have led them to become addicted. The problem, of course, is that their treatment methods are ineffective. Then you have the harm reduction approach to treatment, which holds that addiction is a disease and that the thing that needs to be addressed foremost is not necessarily the addiction to opioids, but the negative social consequences of that addiction. So if you can put someone on a maintenance drug that stops them from harming their bodies or committing crimes to feed their addiction that allows them to function and go back to holding down a steady job and supporting their family, then that's really what matters. That's success. Now, that doesn't mean patients don't also need to get help addressing the deeper issues that may have contributed to their addiction. But as Lois points out, by the time someone decides they're ready to get help, the nature of the disease has often changed. 
when somebody starts using drugs, it's to get high. They want to feel good. They want to get that high. When they get to the point that they want to be in recovery, they're using so they're not dope sick. They've gone beyond being high into, I just got to do this to keep from puking my guts out. I I think until um, some of these politicians and judges even and policymakers leave their garrets of hypocrisy and and ignorance, it's going to get worse. There's just not enough facilities. Too expensive to do it. Waiting lists are too high. And those long waiting lists mean that people like Lois Vance have to be very selective about who they let in. She can only accept the patients who are the most serious about recovery. Patients, after they go go into that waiting list, the more they call me, the faster they get in. And that's how I know that they're really interested in getting help. Because I have patients on that list that I never hear from again. And that those are the patients that I know don't really want help. The more they call me, the more I know that they really want in here. If an addict is lucky, one time in their life they'll get a chance to get in a program of this quality, of this magnitude, like the one I'm in now. Why that falls on deaf ears, I, I don't know. So there must be a lot of people trying to get into these programs who can't. There are. A lot. And when you look at the number of overdose deaths that are happening every month and the relative success rates between MAT and these other methods, that means this is really costing lives. If you're sitting on a waiting list for too long, you might not get help in time. Then there's the question of regulations. Because one of the more tragic ironies of the situation right now is that there's far more paperwork, far more red tape and regulation on Suboxone than on Oxycontin or any of these other addictive opiates. For recovery specialists like Lois, this is unbelievably frustrating. If a doctor has to have a special waiver to write Suboxone, why does that doctor not have have to have a special waiver to write Oxycontin? Why there isn't a special waiver to write any controlled opioid? Those constraints are especially frustrating for Lois because she ends up having to turn away people who want help. Statistically, she knows some of them may die. We are losing a whole generation and probably two generations of people, and they are dying. My whole neighborhood where I live, there are no little children because all of the people in my neighborhood have lost their children because they're drug addicts. And, And the state has come in and taken all of the children out of my neighborhood. There are no children. We'll never get them back. I, I, I hope that it doesn't take some tragedy that some bureaucrat doesn't lose their wife or their child or their sister to this horrible disease. I hope it changes before that, before we get there. I hope somebody understands it before before it becomes a tragedy like that. Suboxone programs are being expanded in West Virginia. But when you look at the baby steps that regulators and lawmakers are making and compare them to the avalanche of overdose deaths and other related health problems, it's hard to imagine they have any chance of keeping up. When I talked to Eric Ayer, the Charleston Gazette Mail reporter we heard from at the top of the show, he said he noticed a lack of urgency coming from politicians in the Capitol. They'll say, you know, fighting the opioid issue is the number one priority. I haven't seen a thing out of the governor's office as an example of this being the number one priority before the November election. 
there was panel after panel like everybody who was running for office would hold this like opioid symposium i'm the i'm the number one opioid fighter no 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 no. i'm the number one there's like this like battle who's who's opioid fighter number one in west virginia but uh, now that the election season is over i haven't heard of heard of a panel or a symposium or anything like that for example there was recently a vote to set up an office of drug control policy in west virginia eric thought it was a simple no-brainer kind of measure which basically would have meant hiring someone to serve as an official point person on the opioid epidemic. It was about 11.30 at night, and somebody emails me and says um, it hadn't passed yet. So I'm like, no way. And this is just to set up the commission? This to, yeah, this is like a real easy thing to do. Um, and everybody was behind it. I mean, there wasn't anybody against it. But it just got lost in the shuffle. If, if you're the coal industry here, you're the natural gas industry here, they'll fly, uh, you know, come down in their corporate jets and they'll, they'll fly down um, with an army of lobbyists, literally an army of lobbyists. I mean, a dozen, dozen or so lobbyists. And they, they have the ear of the legislators. Um, there's, there's nobody advocating for the people who are addicted, the recovering addicts. Um, they have they have no voice, and what we've heard uh, out of the Trump administration is sort of echoed here: is let's uh, increase sentences, let's put them in prison, um, let, let's let's this sort of the lock them up approach, and that was um, far and away the, the 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 largest number of bills were along the lock them up approach. This sounds a lot like the war on drugs rhetoric we've always heard. Well, in a conservative state like West Virginia, that certainly seems to be the language that politicians are most comfortable with. But there are people who are attempting to deal with this more realistically. I talked with Michael Brummage from the Kanawha Charleston Health Department, where he served as executive director for the last two years. He estimates that around 80 to 90 percent of his work is now devoted to some aspect of the opioid epidemic. He comes from a military background, which feels strangely appropriate considering the scope of this crisis. I'm going to draw back to my own military experience and say that we would never send soldiers out onto the battlefield without the proper training and equipment to be able to fight a battle. What we're having every year in the United States is a Vietnam number of casualties, 56,000 casualties every single year. We all put our resources toward things we value. And if we really value getting on top of this epidemic, which is draining the taxpayer, on the back end, then I think we'll devote those kind of resources. And so the proof is in the pudding for me. Brummage sees MAT, medication-assisted treatment, as an important tool in addressing this crisis. It's not a miracle cure, but it has shown better results than anything out there right now. Brummage also points out that one of the most serious obstacles that officials like him are facing is the public's attitude about addiction. People don't seem to think of opioids as a real problem until they see themselves or their families directly affected. This goes back to sort of a societal phenomenon of othering, treating people as though they are different than I am. People would like to think, well, this is a problem that only happens to those people or people living in those neighborhoods. So they're kind of like modern-day lepers. Nobody wants to touch them, see them, have anything to do with them. And that's a way to protect yourself, to think, well, that can't come into my world. But the truth is, is we're all connected. And I've seen in the social commentary lines. Uh, Somebody even wrote, leave them lie and let them die. This is a test of our compassion. And we don't treat any other disease like this. 
So for example, the smoker who has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, who continues to smoke and gets readmitted to the emergency room over and over and over, or the heart failure patient who fails to adhere to their medication regimen, eats a high salt diet and takes lots of fluids, who shows back up in the emergency room over and over and over again, are treated completely differently than the opioid addict who shows up in the emergency room over and over and over. And so this is testing our compassion. What we've done in the past has not worked. The war on drugs was fought and we lost. We're worse off today than we were probably at any point in our history with opioids or any other drug for that matter. We are thinking about this problem in a fundamentally flawed way because we have designed a system to get us the results that we have today. We have to go back and look at really fundamental assumptions about what we're doing around this. With all this said, are you hopeful for the future of the opioid epidemic? Are things going to get worse before they get better? Is it all just up in the air right now? Things are getting worse, and they will get worse before they get better. And this is spreading across the United States, and so we need to be prepared for that. If you look at the overdose maps, you'll see that this has spread like a metastatic cancer across the United States. So I have, you know, to use a coal mining term, I think we're the canary in the coal mine. It's worse here right now, but if it hasn't come to your community, you're blessed, but I think it's coming to you. That's a bleak diagnosis. Yeah. And I don't know if there's going to be a lot of big, broad, uplifting developments on this front, at least in the immediate future. But the good news is that there are people like Greg and Archie all over the country who are managing to survive, even if it is against the odds. And I'm not out of the woods, you know. It just takes one mistake, one relapse. I'm just now creeping off the precipice of the abyss, just now starting to be really physically and mentally stable and well and normal. But it's opening doors. It's getting me thinking about the future. You know, I obviously want to provide a life for my daughter. I want to find a job. I want to continue my education if I can, if it's feasible. When they come in, you know, and they're walking in, they got their hats pulled down over their face, and they're they're walking in with their heads hanging down, and you think, man, these these guys, and and in in a week or two weeks, you think, wow, how tall are these fellows? You know, and they're, they their shoulders straighten up, and and they start looking you in the eye. You know, and you, you see that grin. They start talking about their families and the, their children. And it's just a, a, it's almost like they're born again. It's not easy on them. It's certainly not. Um, and they'll tell you that this is a hard program, but it's much easier than the way they were living out there. In one word, hope. It's given me hope. It's given me my life back. I'm Still Here is a HuffPost podcast produced and edited by Nick Offenberg and Jessica Samacow, with production and editing this episode by Zach Young. This story was reported by Nick Wing. I'm Ziba Blay. Plus, a special thanks to HuffPost's Jason Cherkis and Paige Lavender for their help on this episode. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or send us an email. Tell us your story of survival. Still here at HuffPost.com. And just a heads up, we're taking a break next week to share an important episode from season two of another HuffPost podcast, Candidate Confessional. But after that, we'll be back with more from I'm Still Here.